we will be returning to a series of studies that we left off last summer in the Gospel of John. Uh, that will start at the end of February and will take us up through the Easter celebration. But at this time, for the next few weeks leading up to the end of February, I'm going to do a brief series on what the Bible has to say to us about our community as believers, our fellowship in Christ. Uh, when we, as the leadership of the church, when we divide up the workload, we do a division of labor in the church, we divide all of our ministry teams and coordinators into four categories, and one of those four categories is fellowship. We tend to take that part of our ministry too lightly, but as I hope we'll see in the coming weeks, that the Lord cares very deeply about our fellowship with one another and what we do to strengthen and maintain and, and spread that unity among ourselves. So let's uh, look at John, First John, the first epistle of John, chapter 1. I'll read the first, uh, all ten verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim, it to you, proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If I were to ask you this morning to summarize your entire life with two words, what would those two words be? fun guy, loyal friend, loving parent, honor student, football fan? What two words would you choose to summarize all that you are? It's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible to summarize the complicated nature of our personality and our lives by using just two words. Or is it? The Apostle Paul does that for all of us. The Apostle Paul has a two-word description that fully, completely describes the entirety of your life if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, a true believer. It's Paul's favorite phrase. He uses it over and over and over again. It's so important to him. Have you guessed what it is? In Christ. In Christ. That is Paul's summary of your entire existence, of your whole life. 
in Christ. Paul uses that phrase or derivatives of it, like in Jesus Christ or in him or in the beloved. He uses that phrase 165 times in the 13 short letters that he wrote in the New Testament. 165 times. 36 times he uses that phrase to describe every Christian's life in the book of Ephesians alone. 12 times in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians alone. That's how important that phrase is to Paul. It summarizes everything we are. To Paul, this was the very nature, the very essence, the very experience of what it means to be a Christian. It reflects a deep, spiritual, intimate, dependent relationship that drives and directs every choice, every action, every thought in your life. The old theologians used to call it the mystical union of Christ. And I'm hesitant to use that phrase today because when you hear mysticism, you think of some Eastern religion. But it's just what they're trying to say with that is that this is so important and it's beyond our comprehension in a sense. But it's so real. It's the very essence of Christianity. Matter of fact, I think... To look at salvation and understand what salvation is, and we talk about salvation as Christians out there in the world, they don't know what we're talking about. I mean, what do you need to be saved from anyway? What's salvation? And they have all these different concepts of what we mean by salvation. I think one of the best biblical definitions of salvation, in light of how important this concept of being in Christ was to Paul, is that we, by God's grace, are taken from a status or a position of being outside of Christ to being put in Christ. By God's grace. That's what salvation is. We are taken by God's grace alone from a place of being outside of Christ and all that that means and entails to being in Christ. And that salvation really is understanding, embracing, and experiencing and progressing in the meaning of all that that entails in Scripture. John Murray, who was a great Reformed theologian of the last century, a former professor at Westminster Seminary. Here's a quote from him. He said, Union with Christ, or us being in Christ, is, isn't, simply, isn't simply a step in the application of redemption. It is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. In essence, just saying in fancier words what I've just said to you. It is what salvation is, biblically speaking. Let me just illustrate that quickly. I want to run through some of Paul's scriptures. Let me show you how every aspect, no matter what facet of our salvation you look at, Paul defines it as being essentially in Christ. Listen to this. How about being chosen? Chosen by God to be saved. Paul says that that was in Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's choosing of us was in Christ. Secondly, us being born again is in Christ. Regeneration, being born again, is in Christ, according to Paul. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Justification by faith alone is in Christ, according to Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Only in him do we become the righteousness of God. Paul, matter of fact, that's really what the middle of the book of Romans is about, isn't it? Paul says we died with Christ and were raised with Christ so that by the time he gets to chapter 8, verse 1, he can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith in Christ Jesus, we are adopted into the very family of God in Christ. Galatians 3, 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Having been adopted, we are sanctified. And guess what? We are sanctified in Christ. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And really, Paul there is just reflecting one of the central teachings that Jesus gave us back in John 15 when he said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our sanctification is in Christ. And then finally, our glorification, when it is complete, will be in Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you get the message? It's really important that we understand that salvation means being in Christ Jesus. To be saved is to be in Christ. While we live, we live in Christ, and when we die, we fall asleep in Christ. I often hesitate to use this as an illustration. I've used it many times, but I always think, well, this is so simple, simplistic, that it runs the danger of making something very wonderful and mystical and complex Uh, actually you'd corrupt it by making it too simple but to me it's a helpful thought I hope it is to you if I take this bulletin and I put it in my Bible from that point on once the bulletin is in the Bible everything that is done to the Bible is also done to the bulletin if I raise the Bible the bulletin is raised if I lower the Bible the bulletin is lowered if I put the Bible on the floor and stomp on it the bulletin gets stomped on Everything that happens to the Bible happens to the bulletin and vice versa. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but to me it's helpful. That that is part of what Paul is saying, is that everything that has happened to Christ and will happen to Christ will happen to us. And everything that happens to us, in a real sense, happens also to Christ, because we are in Christ and he is in us. It's a wonderful, life-changing concept. And I think we take what being saved means far too lightly. If you were to think of being saved as like the life of a computer, a lot of people think that being saved is kind of like on your computer adding a new software program. Okay, I'm all these things and I've got all these things going on in my life and now I'm going to add being a Christian and being saved to all these programs I've got running. But you know, according to scripture, that to be in, salvation is being in Christ is something far more comprehensive and life-changing than that. To carry the analogy, it would be like wiping the hard drive of your computer totally blank and then installing a new radically different operating system. Not that I'm making any statement about Macs or PCs or Windows. or I have no, no dog in that fight. But salvation is a total reorientation of who you are. You were outside of Christ, now you're in Christ. 
In him we live and move and have our being. That's what salvation means. Okay, what does all this have to do with the first chapter of 1 John? You probably noticed, if you took the time to look back at it, that, he does, that John, the Apostle John, doesn't use the phrase in Christ. He doesn't use Paul's favorite phrase in this chapter even once. But what John does in this chapter is he builds on the concept of what Paul has established of what salvation is. Salvation is being in Christ, and what John is trying to tell us here in John chapter 1 is that if you're in Christ, then you are not only in union with Christ, but you're in union with all of other true believers. And that is the foundation. That is the root of our fellowship. If you understand what that means, it's going to totally transform your understanding of what fellowship is in the life of the church. Now, 1 John, as an epistle, is primarily about the marks of true salvation. What does real Christianity look like? And that's really what the the letter is mostly about. But here in the introduction, notice what what John does as he begins writing. He basically lays claim to a unique authority. He's saying that he, the Apostle John, as one of the 12 apostles, was called by God to be an eyewitness. That's something you and I have not been called to. John, as an apostle, was called to be an eyewitness of the appearance of what he calls the word of life. He was an eyewitness to the moment in history when the eternal word of life, which we know from his gospel is the eternal son of God, came into time and space, came into history, added to his divine nature, a human nature, and dwelt among us. And John says, I have unique authority because I was called by God to be an eyewitness to the word of life becoming flesh and dwelling in our midst. John says, I saw him with my eyes. I saw him heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out the demons. I saw him. I was an eyewitness. He says, I heard him with my own ears. I heard him proclaim the truth of God to teach with an authority that no man could ever claim. I touched him, he says, even with my hands. This is the Apostle John who leaned on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the Apostle John who, with the other apostles, put his fingers in the wounds of his hands after his resurrection and in his side. John says, I even touched the word of life. But then he goes on in verse 3 to say that he's been given even a special commission. Beyond being an eyewitness, he's been commissioned, he says, to proclaim the word of life. He has been sent as an eyewitness to proclaim the word of life to the world, the gospel. And you notice here in, John, in 1 John chapter 1, the gospel is not about Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ. He's to proclaim the word of life, who is the word become flesh, who is Jesus Christ. But I want, for the rest of my time this morning, to focus in on that remarkable statement that he makes in verse 3 in the middle there. Basically there he's answering the question, why did God send the apostles as eyewitnesses to proclaim the gospel? Why did he do it? Now, if you weren't looking, and a lot of you are looking, so stop it. If you weren't looking at verse 3, you might give off the top of your head an answer like, why did God send the apostles to preach the gospel 
that is Jesus Christ. Why did he do it? You might say to save lost sinners. And that would be true. But it would be incomplete. Do you notice what he really says? Now you can look again. He says in verse 3 that he was sent to proclaim the word of life so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is being preached throughout the world so that believers can be in fellowship with each other and with God the Father and God the Son. You see how this matches up and fits in, dovetails nicely with what Paul has said? That the Christian life, that salvation is about being in Christ? Well, that's what John's doing here is adding another beautiful element to that. Is that as we are in Christ, therefore, because we're all together in Christ, we are, in a sense, in one another. We share life together, the life that is Christ. The gospel is preached to bring lost sinners into fellowship with God and with each other, and salvation is being brought into that eternal fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the church. And that's what we so often leave out in our understanding. That salvation is being brought into fellowship with God and with his church. In John 17, Jesus prays for the church. And in the climactic section of that great prayer where Jesus prays for his church, listen to how this sentiment from 1 John chapter 1 is reflected in how Jesus prays for his own church. He's praying here in this last section, if you remember, not for the apostles, which he prays for earlier, but for those who will believe because the apostles were faithful to their commission to go preach the gospel. And so I'll pick up the reading in John 17 and verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Salvation is being in Christ, in fellowship with God, in fellowship with each other. That's what salvation is. It's essential to it. In 1 John chapter 1, he uses the word fellowship in the original Greek language is a word that most Christians are familiar with. It's koinonia. What's interesting is how that word koinonia developed. It wasn't a very remarkable word in the Greek culture, in the Greek language. It talked about fellowship, and and in a basic sense, worldly fellowship. Anybody has fellowship with other people if you share something in common. And so you may have fellowship in your job, or you may have fellowship in your neighborhood, or you may have fellowship in your family, or you may have fellowship in football, or you may have fellowship in sin, sex, drugs, whatever. You may have fellowship in any, many thing in this world that you have in common with somebody else. But actually, koinonia, even in the Greek language, took a step beyond that because when that word was used, it wasn't the common word for that sense of community or fellowship. It was used more specifically in the case of a yoking, of a, of a of a partnership, and so a business partnership would be called koinonia because there's something a little deeper than just sharing a neighborhood in common or an athletic event in common. It, it was something, a, a real dependent relationship between two people. And of course, it was used then also for marriage. 
as being the ultimate dependent relationship between two people. Well, when the apostles came along, they added a much higher, much more glorious meaning to the word koinonia when they used it as the distinctive word to describe what believers have among ourselves. That koinonia was the very essence of what the church was. And notice the thing that we have in common, according to what John is saying here in this first chapter, what we have in common is that we are all in Christ. That we share the fact that we are all in Christ. That is an incredible, deep, profound bond between sinners like you and me. That we share Christ, the life of the word of life, Christ himself. You know, it's funny, we often call it's not unique to us. Churches often call the hour after the worship service when you go out there and drink coffee and eat snacks, we call that the fellowship hour. It's kind of a misnomer, really. Not that fellowship doesn't happen then, it certainly does. But the best fellowship on Sunday morning is what happens here. The best fellowship in the church is when we sing the great hymns of the faith together. The best fellowship is when we stand together and recite the historic creeds that summarize the biblical faith together. The best fellowship is when we open the word together and let God speak to us by his spirit and by his word. That's fellowship. The best fellowship of life. And the best moment of that fellowship is around the Lord's table. When we gather to let the word of God be visualized and and tangible as we, by faith, are fed by the grace of the Lord. One commentator defined koinonia as shared life, and he goes on to say, and this is interesting, I just like the way he put it, that the church is to be the context of life, not an appendage to it. The church is to be the context of your life and not an appendage to it. How many of us live lives like church is really just another thing on our to-do list? It's meant to be the context of all that we think and do. Notice that John says in verse 4 that this fellowship that we have with Christ and with each other leads to what he calls a complete joy. And if you're a real believer and you've tasted of the fellowship of the church, you know what he's talking about. I know of no greater pleasure in life, and I mean this, I know of no greater pleasure in my life than standing with my family of believers after a service and talking about what God's word said to us that day. I have no greater pleasure in life than sitting around in a Bible study and being changed by the word of God together and sharing in that, bearing one of those burdens in prayer together. I know of no greater joy in life than going out and preaching the gospel in our community together. I know of no greater joy in life than serving the poor and the needy together in the name of Christ. To be in Christ is the essence of life, and we do it always together. The biblical pictures of our communion with Christ are always corporate. They always speak of us together. The vine and the branches. The head and the body. Even the metaphor of the bridegroom and the bride. We tend to sometimes apply that to us as individual Christians, that Christ is like a husband to me. I'm like a bride to Christ. And that does speak 
legitimately to my relationship with him. But the Bible never talks about it that way. The bride is always the church. We together are the bride of Christ. We cannot, when Christ looks at the church, he doesn't separate us out like that and deal with us individually. He deals with us together. Yes, he sees and knows us individually, intimately, in depth. But he always looks at us together as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. There is no, listen to this carefully, there is no communion with Christ that does not involve communion with the church. And there are too many people who profess to be Christians who want Christ but don't want the church. And you can't separate Christ from his church. Scripture is very clear on that. To go back to the computer analogy, whenever you have your hard drive wiped clean and you are given this new operating system for life, you are also connected to a vast network of other computers. Your life is intimately tied with every other life of every other true believer throughout the world, especially in your local church family. But do you notice how John ends chapter 1? He ends the chapter by talking about sin. And that's appropriate because really, ultimately, that's the only threat to the unity, the union with Christ that we have and the union we have with one another. But the reason he goes where he goes with sin is because union with Christ cleanses us from the sin that separates. Sin always separates. Sin always alienates. And the gospel is the answer to that. As John puts it beginning of verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, this is why it was important at the beginning of the chapter that the apostle John asserted strongly his unique authority as an eyewitness of Christ coming into the world and his divine commission to preach the gospel that was given to him, to preach the Christ that he was an eyewitness of. We get people who object to us being stringent and diligent to be precise in our doctrine, especially sometimes in in the doctrines that define what the gospel is. But this is why it's so important, is because it's the gospel that the apostles preached is the only gospel that takes care of sin. The gospel that the, that the eyewitness, divinely commissioned apostles proclaimed is the only gospel that takes seriously the holiness of God who is light and cannot look upon darkness. The gospel that the divinely commissioned eyewitness apostles proclaimed is the only gospel that teaches that the eternal Son of God added to his divine nature a human nature became fully God and fully man and therefore was qualified being without sin, being fully human except without sin. He was the only one qualified to go to the cross and to shed his blood as atoning sacrifice for our sins to pay the price in full. Only the apostolic gospel provides that answer for sin. Since he has paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, and future, understand this. Sin can never, ever, ultimately separate the believer from God. 
and never ultimately separate believers from one another. I know it feels like you're separated in this life while we wait for our salvation to be made complete. But sin will not ultimately separate any true believers just as it will never separate us from the God who saved us. That has huge implications for the relationships that we have in the church. Huge implications. That's what Paul's getting at when he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. You see, that's why we preach the gospel here every week. Because the gospel is the source of our fellowship. The gospel, which is Jesus Christ, is the reason not only that we are together, not only the reason that we have so much in common, so much deep, profound things in common, but it's why sin ultimately doesn't divide us. What makes Christian fellowship different from work fellowship or football fellowship or neighborhood fellowship or family fellowship, what makes Christian fellowship different isn't that we don't sin sin against each other. That's not what makes us different. That's not what makes the character of Christian fellowship different. We do sin against each other. What makes our fellowship different is that we have the gospel, the one proclaimed by the apostles, which is the only way for sin to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Only those who have the gospel and are in Christ can truly, ultimately forgive and be reconciled. Now I know people, especially those who have turned their back on the church, who feel that they've been offended by the church, they've been sinned against, they've been burned, they've been hurt so badly in the church, that they leave the church. They say, I don't want anything to do with the church because Christians are so mean to one another. Christians are worse than than the people out there in the world. I'd rather be out there among the people in the world. Baloney. It's not true if your church is a true church. If your church is a true church, then there aren't worse sinners in your church than there are outside the church. That's not true. What is true is that we will hurt each other far more deeply with our sins. Because, you know why? Because we're all in Christ. Because we have this deep unity with one another. We're together in Christ. We're bound together at such a deep level because of Christ that when we sin against each other, we really hurt each other. Because we've really opened ourselves up to each other. We've been vulnerable to each other. We've trusted each other, as we should. But we have the gospel. And we forgive as we've first been forgiven. So even though we get hurt far worse in the church, it's only in the church that you're going to find healing and reconciliation. That's why the gospel is so important. If you're a true Christian, your whole life, the essence of who you are, of all you are, all you ever will be, is summarized in two words. In Christ. And you say along with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if you are in Christ, then you are one with his people. You are in fellowship with the true church. 
And it's the love of Christ as it's reflected in the way that we serve one another and the way that we forgive one another. That's the kind of love that's a powerful witness to a community full of people that have broken relationships up to their eyeballs. That they are that they're hurt, they're lonely, they're alienated, they, they've become so hardened by the sins of others, they don't open themselves up to others. Here's where the healing is. Here's where the life is. Here's where Christ is, where the gospel is proclaimed. Let me read to you as I close a portion of how John closes his letter. And I just want you to think about what he says about what salvation is. Salvation is being in fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the church. And listen to what John says about what that implications that has for our witness before the world. He says in 1 John 4, beginning of verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us.